Hello, and welcome to the first podcast of 2022 for the RevDem Rule of Law section. Our guest today is Dr. Tom Tomes, Assistant Professor of Political Theory and European Politics at the Institute of Political Science at the University of Leiden. Tom is the principal investigator in protecting democracy in Europe, and he has recently published in the ResPublica journal an article that argues for the creation of an EU expulsion mechanism to address backsliding member states. This timely and thought-provoking proposal will be the topic of our conversation today. So welcome to the podcast, Tom. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks a lot, Oliver. Thanks for inviting me. I really like what you guys are doing at RevDem. Thank you very much. So to start our conversation, can you summarise your argument for why the EU should and can expel backsliding member states? Yes, of course. So um, I think to start, perhaps uh, we should I, sh- I should emphasise that the the should and the can parts of the argument are separate, mm-hmm. right? So um, they function independently of one another. And we can, if we accept the should, the normative argument, uh, we can still reject the things I say about the fact that it's possible and, and vice versa. So to start with should then, the, the should, the normative argument, it's conditional. So the idea is not that the EU currently should expel certain member states, like say Hungary and Poland, the states against which Article 7 procedures have started, um, but rather that the EU should be able to expel, frankly, autocratic member states. Sure. And the argument has, has kind of two different parts. So the first part of the argument, um, I, I in the first part of the argument, I basically argue that allowing autocratic governments to participate in supranational lawmaking both undermines the democratic legitimacy of EU law and policy, and undermines the civic freedom of EU citizens, right? So once, if we agree with that, if we agree that allowing autocratic governments to participate um, undermines democratic legitimacy, then we need to think of ways in which they can be excluded. Mm -hmm. And the second part of the argument, I argue that it's in fact incompatible with democracy to exclude autocratic governments from EU lawmaking if we continue to hold them subject to EU law. Mm-hmm. and policy. This is because of something that I, it's called the all-subjective principle in democratic theory. Right? So continuing to sub- subject someone to the law while excluding them from lawmaking, this is anti-democratic. Right? So the two parts of the argument, on the one hand, including them is anti-democratic, and on the other hand, excluding them but continuing to subject them is anti-democratic. Mm-hmm. This leads to the conclusion that we need to exclude them while not continuing to hold them subject and in that sense we need to expel them Mm -hmm. the argument that the eu can expel member states that are autocratic is is a separate argument as i as i said in the beginning so here the claim should be put very carefully Um, and i'm not a lawyer but this is this is my my best case and i've I've worked a little bit with um with a a colleague from maastricht meren chamon so he, he is a lawyer on this argument, and uh, and I think it holds. So the idea is that pro-democratic EU member states can exclude autocratic member states from EU integration. So this is important. This is an important nuance because my argument is not that the EU can expel autocratic member states de jure, but rather that pro-democratic member states can withdraw and refound mm-hmm. an EU 2.0 without autocratic member states. This would leave autocratic member states with an empty shell of membership in a defunct organization. Now, of course, this would be really difficult to bring about politically. Mm -hmm. 
The argument is that legally speaking, there's nothing stopping pro-democratic member states from collectively invoking Article 50, refounding an EU 2.0 that replicates much of the institutional structure of the EU and using their qualified majority in the council to transfer resources from the EU to the EU 2.0 as part of the withdrawal, uh, withdrawal agreement. Great, thank you for that very succinct summary of the argument. I think it's a great springboard for the conversation we're going to have. And a foundational claim of the normative argument you outlined there in um, your article is that Article 7 of the Treaty on European Union, the EU's value protection clause, which has been oft discussed in relation to Hungary and Poland, falls foul of what you call a performative contradiction, because the sanction of suspension of voting rights in the Council in order to uphold the values in Article 2, TEU, itself violates the values of democracy and equality, as you mentioned there, the all-affected principle. Do you believe that depriving a subject of the ability to vote over laws that will be binding upon them is always undemocratic? And in the specific context of the EU, how do you respond to the argument that suspension may actually be proportionate because individuals are still partially represented in the laws that will be binding upon them as EU citizens through uh, the voting rights of the European Parliament? Thanks, Oliver. That's a, that's a great question. I mean, there's a couple of different parts to it. So um, let me start just by just by specifying two things. Firstly, and it's it's a it's a matter of nuance, but the nuance here is important. Um, the the argument for the anti-democratic nature of of the sanction in Article Seven um, isn't that it violates the all affected principle, okay. but the all subjected principle, right? So these these two principles are similar in democratic theory, but they're different in the sense that the all affected principle seems to have reach um, that, that is quite expansionary. In fact, some, some political philosophers like um, Robert Goodin and Arash Abizadeh have argued that uh, it, it effectively covers everyone in the world, right? Because everyone is affected in some way, if only by being excluded from the possibility to, um, to be involved in, in a decision had it gone another way, right? Et cetera. So um, my, my principle is slightly more limited. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, um, the performative contradiction. So this is one of two arguments that I actually make um, against the normative coherence of Article 7. So in, in, a, in a first article from 2020, which I published in Global Justice uh, Theory Practice Rhetoric, um, I make an argument uh, which is more focused on this, uh, on the democratic theory side, right? So more focused on the, the subjection um, claim. And then in this, so, so I, I introduce a new element in the in the Respublica article, and that's this performative contradiction idea. So the performative contradiction idea is basically grounded on the view that Article 7 seeks to communicate something. Hmm. And it seeks to communicate, amongst other things, the value of uh, Article 2 fundamental values, right? Uh, Democracy, equality, and so forth. In order to communicate those values, the, the sanction needs to not undermine those values, right? To be clear communication. Performative contradiction in the straightforward sense is when you when you say something, when an utterance undermines the content of what you say. A classic, typical example is if you say, I am dead, right? You can't say, I am dead, but the utterance undermines the content of the, of the uh, contradiction, of the, of the statement. Yeah. So here it's a, a little bit more uh, convoluted, right? It's not so straightforward in that it's not the utterance itself, right? It's the sanction which undermines the values. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I make a similar argument, uh, which I'll get to in a minute, um, with regards to criminal disenfranchisement in an article which I published with Andre Poama, a colleague of mine in Leida, 
in the American Political Science Review. So here in, in this idea, the argument is that the sanction in Article 7, so the sanction that is mentioned, suspension of voting rights uh, by a member state in the Council of the European Union, uh, undermines uh, the principles of uh, the principles that flow from the values that Article 2 uh, enunciates, specifically democracy and equality. Now, the question of whether I think it's always anti-democratic to deprive a subject uh, to participate as equals, um, also in other contexts, is, is a really interesting one. And we could talk for a long time about that, but we'd get quite would get quite far from our from our topic of discussion. To, to, to summarize basically um, briefly, I came to this to this kind of theory and to this view via study of criminal disenfranchisement. And I'm very committed to the claim that uh, disenfranchising criminals is basically always anti-democratic. Um, it's a little bit more complicated when we get to the question of the enfranchisement of people who don't have legal competence. So children, for example, or people with severe cognitive disabilities. So philosophically, that's more complicated because in many cases, these people are not equally subject to the law, especially to criminal law. Um, even there, though, I tend to the view that they should probably be enfranchised. But perhaps that's the subject of a different conversation. Um, your argument about proportionality is interesting. And here again, I would, as a democratic theorist that, that started thinking about these things via um, study of the right to vote, I would again make the analogy at the national level. Right? Mm -hmm. So it used to be the case that um, weighted voting was um, quite a, a quite an ordinary position to take, to be in favour of weighted voting. Famously, John Stuart Mill um, thought that uh, people who are educated ought to have more votes uh, than than the uneducated. Right, and he's considered to be uh, one of a very important uh, democratic theorist. Now we widely reject that view, uh, with, with some exceptions. And I think the reasons why we reject it are, are the same reasons why we would, I would reject this proportionality argument. So, of course, it's important that an excluded member state, a disenfranchised member state in, say, the council, that the citizens would continue to be represented in parliament. Right? That's, in, in a sense, better than nothing. Uh, but it would still uh, treat those citizens unequally. Mm -hmm. And because democracy is committed, in my view, to equal representation, um, this would undermine uh, foundational democratic principles. Okay, thanks. That's very clear, Tom. And as you mentioned in your answer to the first question, you utilise Article 50, the withdrawal clause, as the legal mechanism whereby de facto expulsion could be achieved through mass withdrawal of all other member states. Are there any normative reasons why you do not propose the creation of an explicit expulsion sanction, a new sanction under Article 7 TEU? Or is your concern purely pragmatic insofar as the vetoes of certain member states would prevent the amendment of Article 7 to create an explicit expulsion sanction? Great. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, basically, it's largely pragmatic. So, so I started uh, the, the podcast by emphasizing that the, the should and the can parts of the argument are separate, right? So the should argument, if we accept that should argument, then basically, um, we need to create if there isn't, uh, if there isn't an expulsion mechanism already, we need to create one. Mm -hmm. And then the can argument is that there's something that could be used in that way, mm -hmm. um, that already exists uh, in, in the current treaty structure. Now, so, so that normatively, there's absolutely no reason uh, why, why I think the sanctions mechanism should not be created. In fact, it would be, I don't know, 
cleaner somehow, <laughs> more straightforward uh, to do this via treaty reform. Um, I think I would probably uh, want to reform other aspects of, of Article 7 as well, if it would um, include a sanctions mechanism uh, of, of expulsion. Uh, you'd have to think about so the unanimity clause. You'd have to think about the relative empowerment of member state governments vis-a-vis -vis the European Parliament and the Commission. Right? You'd have to think about all of these things and the, and the different normative justifications for them. But, but clearly, I would be in favour of the inclusion of an expulsion mechanism an explicit expulsion mechanism in a future EU treaty. Politically, I think it's completely unfeasible and, and would never happen um, in, in current, you know, within what we can imagine of, of current European politics. Uh, and that's why I think it's important to, to think about ways that this would, could come about um, within the current treaty mechanism. So ba basically, I came at that Article 50 angle by thinking through, and this is a little dystopic of me, perhaps, but by thinking through what I think would actually happen in an extreme case, right? So people often respond to me when I, when I talk about this argument and say, well, this is really unrealistic. This is never going to happen. And I think, in fact, that's taking things the wrong way around. Mm -hmm. If a member state would act in a way that's frankly autocratic mm -hmm. in, in a really extreme way, right? If we start to see a member state turning really towards, um, for example, the violent oppression of, of the free press or of the opposition and so forth, then disassociation with that state would become absolutely mandatory mm, yes. for member states that are committed to, uh, to fundamental values. And then this would, I think, be one of the ways that that could come about. I feel it's very important yeah, to see that in the context of a worst case scenario, in a sense. And um, that leads on nicely, I think, to my next question, which did relate to the the can limb of your argument and uh, the use of Article 50. And as we've discussed, this may be more of a question for EU constitutional lawyers rather than a political theorist such as yourself. But I believe the interpretation of Article 50 is important for the efficacy of your proposal. So do you believe that the Court of Justice of the EU would or maybe should find such a manoeuvre compatible with the purpose of Article 50 to provide a sovereign right of withdrawal in accordance with an orderly procedure if the real intention behind this move is not actually withdrawal by those member states triggering Article 50, but instead expulsion of an unrelated member state? And do you believe that such a move could be argued, in fact, to undermine the right of backsliding member states not to withdraw and to continue participating in European integration, as evidenced by their non-triggering of Article 50? Yeah, so this is... As you as you suspect, this is a difficult question for me. I can't I can't speculate as to what the judges would do as a matter of law, but I can I can think with you and with constitutional lawyers in general about what I think should be um, the reasoning here uh, as a political theorist. And I think here um, we might want to distinguish this withdrawn refound uh, procedure. Which I which I describe and, and which I described also with with Marain. we might want to distinguish that uh, trivial uses of that, which politically are very unlikely to ever happen, right? But mm -hmm. hypothetically, a trivial use of that, which potentially the the court might judge to be um, to be incompatible with the telos of Article Fifty from weighty uses of this Article yeah. Fifty withdrawn refound. Um, procedure, which uh, which seem to me 
uh, actually to go in line with the Article 50 uh, telos in the sense that if there's a very weighty reason to disassociate with a particular member state because of, say, human rights violations or, or grossly anti-democratic practices, then it's really important that member states are able to do so, right? Yeah. Continuing to bind those member states to supranational uh, union with such an autocratic state would, I think, be highly problematic from the perspective of, of also EU fundamental values. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think in those circumstances, um, I, would, I would hope that, um, that the Court of Justice of the European Union would find that the procedure um, is indeed uh, compatible with the Talos of Article 50. Yeah, I think that actually raises a very interesting question of whether the court may well find that the telos of European integration itself, of ever closer union, may actually be better served outside of the treaty structures. And there's an interesting, I think, jurisprudential question of whether those values can exist outside of the legal order. Um, so yeah, I can, I think your argument is at least feasible for <laughs> constitutional lawyers. And I think that that connects to my next question, which is actually relates to whether Article 50 in this situation would, would even be necessary, because um, we've discussed briefly on Twitter the historical example of the consideration by member states of uh, a similar de facto mass withdrawal um, by all member states other than Denmark when the Danish electorate rejected the Maastricht Treaty Amendment. And I was wondering whether you know, the time of a treaty amendment under Article 48 EU would actually be an appropriate occasion for consideration of such a, a de facto uh, withdrawal. Of course, vetoes of member states could prevent this coming into force through amendment. But I think my question for you is, do you believe it would perhaps be more transparent and appropriate for the other member states to explicitly conclude an entirely new treaty-based constitutional order, rather than opaquely utilising the withdrawal mechanism in Article 50 for the purpose of de facto expulsion, and I suppose we can find ourselves in a legal question here of maybe is, there's a question of whether Article 50 withdrawal is actually necessary before this could be founded. But yeah, I suppose the, the question is whether it's better to create the new treaty structure explicitly and whether you think this should be linked to a failure um, to conclude a treaty amendment in response to such a situation. So, yes. So it would make sense to um, to try yes. um, kind of other avenues within the, the current treaty treaty structure before resorting to a collective um, withdrawal and refound procedure via Article 50, yes. uh, including uh, treaty amendment via Article 48. Mm -hmm. That seems to make sense. Yeah. Um, but um, then, then there's the question of whether it's more transparent to conclude an entirely new treaty. So I think an EU 2.0 treaty would function in international law, if I'm not mistaken, as an entirely new treaty, right? Um, then there's so there's an interesting political question, right? Would that 2.0 structure um, replicate existing uh, European Union institutions and and kind of uh, adopt um, large portions of of the uh, of the old treaties um, mm -hmm. and and potentially the the acquis communautaire? Um, or would we use that as an opportunity to, you know, uh, work on improving the, the structure of the EU? So the reason I kind of avoid opening that second box is because I think once you open the box of really kind of wholesale uh, revision of the treaties, 
uh, it starts to look even um, more difficult politically for that uh, for that to happen. So in, in the case where really the, the item on the agenda is a, f- a state becoming frankly autocratic. Yes, I think yes. that's the priority, right? Dealing with that is the priority. And um, questions of treaty evolution in other respects should, should take a backseat um, to that priority. And if they were to inhibit um, the disassociation with an autocratic member, then you know they should be postponed. If, if they weren't to, if, they, if there's widespread agreement on reforming certain aspects, then, then I don't see why that's not, um, why that should be off the table. And particularly, I think it would make sense um, to at least reform Article 7 uh, yeah. in, in the founded uh, EU 2.0. Absolutely. Um, my next question, I think, probably returns back to the, uh, the normative issues, those initial starting points. And you mentioned in uh, one of your earlier responses, the place of EU citizenship um, in this. And you've responded to criticism that expulsion would undermine the rights of citizens of uh, those member states through your position that unlike nationality, EU citizenship does not provide the foundational right to have rights, in the words of Hannah Arendt. How do you respond to criticism based on the Habermasian argument, which has been adopted compellingly by Marcus Patberg, amongst others, that EU citizenship and member state nationality are, in fact, co-equal constituent statuses and therefore expulsion would undermine the self-determination of European individuals? I wonder if effectively the question would be, does your argument fall foul of a democratic principle of all affected statuses? Yeah, so this is this is a great question. And I I'm. Super impressed by by Marcus's work on on this issue. Um, they're not easily resolved. Um, your colleague uh, Dimitri Kochinov has also raised the issue about um, equality of citizenship. I don't want to be blasé about these issues. Currently, my view is that while the democratic costs of expelling a frankly autocratic member state would be very high, especially regarding citizens who have resisted the autocratization of their state. Um, nevertheless, the costs of continued supranational integration with an autocratic member state would be higher still. And then we can think, so I, I, fully, I fully accept that there are costs to exclusion. And once we do accept costs to exclusion, exclusion, we can think in those circumstances if there are ways to um, cushion those costs uh, at the individual level. Mm-hmm. I don't want to speculate too much because it's not in the article that we're discussing. I don't want to speculate too much about how, what form that would take. I know, for example, in, in, in um, the case of uh, Brexit, there was, there was discussion about associate uh, EU citizenship. I, I was quite convinced by um, the article by, by Koshinov and Van der Brink uh, against uh, associate membership, uh, associate citizenship, sorry. Um, but yeah, we, we could think about ways to cushion those costs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's at the end of the day, though, I'm, I should probably say that I'm not entirely uh, in line with this Habermasian idea about um, co-equal constituent statuses. I'm more convinced or I'm, I'm, my view is more along the line of Richard Bellamy's um, mm-hmm. idea about the voluntarist nature of supranational association. Um, but these are these are very difficult issues, and uh, I must say that it's it's entirely possible that my views on on this will will evolve. 
Sure, and of course, these are questions of ultimate normative foundations. So <laughs> this debate can rage on forever. Um, I think something that struck me, and this was also reading your initial Verfassens blog pieces, was the fact that your proposal may be regarded as sharing a kind of resemblance with longer standing proposals for differentiation, leading to a core Europe and then a, a periphery of more associate uh, member states. Do you think there would be any scope for the remaining member states in the situation you propose to conclude a new treaty, but with deeper constitutional ties on the basis of shared values, whilst leaving the backsliding member states in a more distant associate position, rather than the more dramatic scenario of leaving these states within a a treaty husk? In a sense, yes. Um, And potentially that could be one uh, one of the kind of options that would in fact play out once uh, once pro-democratic member states threaten convincingly mm. to um, to exclude an autocratic member. I would imagine that that would start a proceeding uh, of negotiations, which hopefully would also result, result in some concessions, whereby this autocratic member state would become less, frankly, autocratic, yeah. right? Uh, in exchange for um, some kind of association, um, some kind of integration in the free market, right? I don't at all support the view that we should uh, completely isolate uh, autocrats um, uh, and that that would further democracy. In fact, I think that's unlikely to be true in most cases. Um, In most cases, of course, the form is very important and and actually studying the empirical effects is very important. But in many cases, uh, linkages um, with with autocratic states can lead to um, some sort of liberalisation, mm-hmm. um, and and I I did some work on this for my for my PhD as well. That said, a new treaty with deeper constitutional ties that that phrase in me that leads me to to the following thought, which is that the current treaties. Um, have pretty deep constitutional ties. Yeah. Right. So we would need to do something about that mm. if a member state were frankly autocratic. Um, merely creating uh, an alternative um, treaty which goes further still would not resolve any of those problems. Sure. Um, and then there's the question of whether we should be in favour at all of kind of two or multi-speed Europe. Mm. um that's that's a difficult issue i think so um daniel kellerman has raised some interesting issues against differentiated integration which i think are very interesting um i'm a little bit on the fence here i think democratic like as a democratic theorist and thinking through the lens of democracy i'm I'm generally in favor of people having the freedom to decide to go further yes um and others having the freedom to decide not to when new items are on the table, new topics of integration, let's say. That said, it shouldn't undermine what already what already exists uh, in terms of its legal coherence, in terms of its normative coherence and so forth. Great. Um, I have a personal academic interest in your argument due to my own arguments uh, I've made in, in articles that a, a withdrawal clause reformed on the basis of the lessons from Brexit could actually help to address the current values crisis between the EU, Hungary and Poland. Do you believe there's any space for almost an inversion of your argument whereby the EU institutions and other member states 
could have more power to encourage a backsliding member state to trigger Article 50 and actually force the nationals of that member state into an existential discussion of whether a liberal democracy or EU citizenship is more important to them, rather than what may be regarded as your new nuclear option of this mass de facto withdrawal and expulsion. Yeah, I think I think that there are very interesting proposals to be examined. Um, one one element of my argument that the ultima ratio sanction should be expulsion or exclusion from EU integration is that you know we should try everything else first, yeah. um, if possible. Um, and certainly, I think now we're not. Here, I'm showing showing a little bit more uh, of, of my view than than I have so far. I don't think we're currently in a position uh, where this kind of withdrawal and, withdraw and refound procedure would be warranted yes. um, against Poland and Hungary, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but people, you know, different people will have a different uh, different views on that on when that threshold is met. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that threshold hasn't yet been met, so there's still space mm-hmm. um, for exploring alternative options, including potentially reforming Article 50, although, of course, um, there, are, there are difficulties uh, with, with reforming the treaties in general, right? Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I think, I think it, is, it is relevant. Article 50, as I understand it, uh, in terms of its historical kind of origin, was in fact created um, in large part to, to create a kind of escape valve uh, to, for precisely... Uh, the context of, of backsliding, mm. um, not at all with with the kind of Brexit scenario in mind. Um, uh, discussions with with Calypso Nicolaidis uh, have led me to that view, um, but I don't know I don't know a lot about the history of this. Um, uh, in that sense, it's failed, right? Um, and absolutely, we could think of ways in which it would be more effective in that to that end. Um, but if a member state were to become frankly autocratic, mm-hmm. um, then I think there's a matter of urgency there, which uh, would lend itself rather to a kind of expulsion exclusion mechanism um, than, than going towards the pushing a member state to, um, to choose themselves mm-hmm. to withdraw. Yes, well, we might still have a bit more road to, to go down there. And my final question uh, concerns the practicability of your very theoretically compelling argument. You mentioned there about the difficulty of of realising these things in practice. However, you do point out that the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte made allusion in 2020 to such a de facto expulsion of Hungary and and Poland, where I believe he said something along the lines of, could we imagine an EU without those member states? So do you believe there is any possibility that such an eventuality could come to pass? And if so, what do you believe would be required in in practice to to realise this? Yeah, so here, so the the conversation with the the Rutte quote is is an interesting one to start with, perhaps, Mm -hmm. Um, because there he he was talking in Parliament Mm -hmm. and in a a rather roundabout way, Mm. um, he was reflecting on conversations that he's had with other European leaders in the context of of UCO, right? So in the periphery of UCO, um, which suggests that it is something that has been discussed. Um, It's it's a kind of avenue that at least some people are are aware of and are are thinking about um, in, in some way. 
whether I think it's possible that some of it, that such an eventuality may come to pass. So, so here I would say, and, and I've, we've, we've discussed this in, in some senses already, right? Conditionally, if things were to become very extreme, I think it would almost necessarily happen. Sure. Um, if politically it becomes noxious for member state governments that are committed to democracy vis-a-vis their own populations, right? If it becomes politically noxious to continue to be associated with a frankly autocratic state, um, then something like this will have to happen. Uh, now, hopefully, of course, we'd never get that far. Um, which, which brings me to, the, to a second point, which is that pragmatically and practically, the primary function of my proposal is not to say this should happen now. Yes. It's also not to say that this should happen at some specified point in the future, mm. although I think in certain circumstances it in fact should. Mm. But it's rather to say that clarity about the possibility of disassociation would hopefully lead into a politics whereby autocratizing member states, in fact, move back towards democratic values. Mm. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a very fascinating conversation. I'm sure we can continue such discussions uh, within the auspices of the Democracy Institute uh, and RevDem in, in the coming months and years. So I'd encourage our listeners to follow RevDem on Facebook, uh, Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. And I'd like to thank you very much again, Tom, for, for being our guest today and for providing such a fascinating conversation for our listeners. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, Oliver. It's been a pleasure and uh, an honour to be on with them. Thank you.